This is the Monday, December 5th, 2016 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation, and at the solicitation of Japan, was still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation Remember the character of the onslaught against us. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. That was President Franklin D. Roosevelt addressing a joint session of Congress after the attack on Pearl Harbor. This week, our time machine picks up a passenger who witnessed that day of infamy firsthand. He was born over a century ago, around the time T.R., Taft, and Wilson were competing for the presidency. Meet Lieutenant Jim Downing. At 19, he left his hometown of Oak Grove, Missouri to enlist in the Navy, and Uncle Sam assigned him to the USS West Virginia as a gunner's mate first class. Hawaii must have seemed like an ideal port of call for Downing and his new wife, Marina. But when the Empire of Japan attacked the U.S. fleet based there, it thrust the young couple and the nation into the Second World War. As Jim Downing ran to his battleship, nicknamed the Weavey, chaos exploded all around the harbor, and a Japanese Zero strafed him. But the bullets, mercifully, went over his head, digging a trench in the dirt nearby, and sparing him the fate of so many that day. Later, 
a tanker filled with aviation fuel, a plump target for the enemy, sailed slowly past the Weavy. As Jim waited for the explosion he was sure would kill him, he looked to the sky and said, Lord, I'll be with you in a minute, a prayer he repeated every minute for the next half hour. But the Almighty, as he often does, had other plans. Today, Lieutenant Downing is 103 years old, and that lesson has become a central one in his long life, informing his work with the Navigators, a worldwide Christian ministry, and his career of public speaking. It's also worth noting that had Jim not been a newlywed on December 7, 1941, he'd have been with his shipmates on the Weavy that fateful morning, proof that for all the teasing marriage gets in sitcoms, it can save your life. In addition to fighting to defeat the Axis powers, Lieutenant Downing served as the commanding officer of his own vessel during the Korean War. Then in 1956, his ship stumbled upon the massive, top-secret H-bomb test at Bikini Atoll. Three, two, one, fire! Jim soaked up 20,000 times the maximum recommended lifetime dosage of radiation. I guess comic books aren't the only place that heroes can face a nuclear blast and come out stronger than ever. For all of us who think we have a book in us, Jim Downing is living proof that it's never too late to start writing it. He just produced The Other Side of Infamy, My Journey Through Pearl Harbor and the World at War. Jim will speak at the 75th commemoration of the attack just a few days after we upload this episode. At the event, he'll be introduced by Gary Sinise. You may recall seeing Lieutenant Downing at President Obama's 2011 State of the Union address as a guest of Senator Michael Bennett. It was Jim's second State of the Union, having previously seen JFK address the nation. It may surprise you that Jim Downing is only the second oldest survivor of the attack, behind 104-year-old Ray Chavez of San Diego. When Jim went up to visit Ray, he joked that he might trip his fellow veteran, just to claim the title of oldest survivor for himself. I guess you're never too old for a little black humor either. Well, let's travel back to Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, and meet Jim Downing on The Other Side of Infamy. Honored to be joined on the line by Jim Downing, author of The Other Side of Infamy, My Journey Through Pearl Harbor and the World at War. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with the History Author Show, sir. Yeah, well, my pleasure. Sir, it doesn't seem enough just to say thank you for your service to the country because you also have this inspiring mission with the Navigators, where you're still known as Navigator Number 6, one of the originals from the original group. People can look that up online. We'll give the website in a minute. You've done this a thousand times, I'm sure. You relive this attack. But will you walk us through that moment when you hear the first explosion on December 7th, 1941, and the world changes? Yes, I was off the ship for the first 20 minutes, or I wouldn't be here today. The majority of the damage was done in the first 11 minutes. I, of course, was attracted to what was going on by the explosions, heavy gunfire. I thought there was a German battleship out in the ocean and that British cruisers were trying to catch her, shooting at her. 
But the radio came on and said that the island of Oahu is under enemy attack. And he said that the enemy has not been identified. But later he came on and said that the enemy has been identified as Japan. So my fellow servicemen and I jumped in the car, went down to the harbor. It took us about 20 minutes, and we were under uh, strafing on the way down. My first concentration, of course, was on my ship, the battleship West Virginia. And it had been hit by nine torpedoes, two bombs, was on fire and sinking. So you can imagine what a disappointment that was to see my ship that I'd been serving on for 10 years sinking and on fire. And also, on a personal note, not something maybe you were thinking of at the time, of course, because these are your shipmates that are being blown into the water, killed. But also, you've just gotten married, so all of your money is in the safe on the ship. Yes, it was. I took my money out of the bank and put it in a safe on the ship, thinking it would be safer there than on land, but it didn't turn out that way. Most of the battleships carried about a million gallons of crude oil, and as they were hit, that covered the water pretty well. So men that were blown off the ship were submerged. Then when they came out, they had a thin film of oil on them. The fire from Arizona was so fierce that they turned into human torches. And that was the hardest thing that I saw that morning, was see these men burning like torches out there in the water. Those details are things that people understand sticking in your mind. Of course, it's what they call a flashbulb memory. You're going to remember that morning. But I was struck that at the age of 103, you remember so many other details in the other side of infamy about your life, about your amazing long life and so many people that you met. And you'll remember things like what you had for dinner in the 30s and what men were talking about before the Great War drew America in. Most people, needless to say, they aren't publishing a book at the age of over 100. So I wonder about those details that are just things that maybe you wouldn't write down, but it's part of your life and you remember it and it draws you into the book. You remember the Model T that you were driving. You remember the names of girls from when you were growing up. Is this all because you plan to be president someday and you kept track of all that? Or is there another reason? I realized that my children and grandchildren wouldn't know what happened unless they got it for me. So I originally wrote down my account for the benefit of my children and grandchildren. Then I found out there was a wider demand for it, and finally this book. And by the way, my assistant has checked out in the Guinness Book of Records, and the oldest male author they have on record is 101. Wow. So it looks like I'm going to set a record for being the oldest according to the Guinness Book of Records. I hope that that adds to some of the sales because we want this story to get out there. It's so unique and also this great story of faith that you have throughout. I mean, I thought that that was incredible that here you are, you're running to the sound of the bombs and the thing that you think to grab with your fellow navigator, I believe his name is Waters, you grab your Bibles too because you're ready for this element of spiritual warfare that you feel that's happening with people being killed all around you, this attack what is it like to be 103 and look back so far to memories that almost nobody living anymore shares? 
No, there's not too many of us. And of course, that was uh, 75 years ago this December. For those of us that are in 2016 that only know really about the attacks through reading books or through films, I wonder what's changed about people's views of the war. You've seen, as you said, 75 years since that, you've seen people's impression of the war with Japan and the Pacific change. You've seen, I'm sure, a million movies come out, even if you haven't seen them all. What do you think Hollywood gets right and wrong? And what do you think those of us in 2016 who are so far removed from the attacks get wrong about the attacks and the war? Well, Hollywood has to be dramatic and include a little bit of romance. But I've seen most of the films that come out of Hollywood. And although there are minor details that are not accurate, I'm glad they came out to uh, instruct the present generation. So I feel even though they're not perfect, they're very valuable to educate a generation. And speaking of romance, your late wife, Morena, is no longer with us, but you'd go through your courtship a little bit. And even if the biblical verse I think you chose there, you mentioned a little funny thing there about it's not the most romantic line in the Bible that you offer, the most romantic passage. We really get to know you as a person here through the other side of infamy. You walk us through your journey of faith and how you end up becoming Navigator Number 6 and how you give your life to Christ. And you have this moment where you're sitting on a bus with a fellow seaman and you're driving a long way. It's a long bus ride. This is before the age of easy air travel, not to mention during the war, so you wouldn't be flying. And you sense he's depressed and you really feel you're being pushed here to talk to him. You know, you describe it in the book, you feel the Lord is telling you, speak to this man, tell him a little bit about your own conversion, tell him about me. And you feel that because as you're stopping along this long bus trip and you're having beer with them and you're smoking, you hold back because you feel like you may be hypocritical if you now suddenly steer the conversation away from this life of sort of living like just guys who are serving over to God and telling him about your conversion. A short time later, that man commits suicide, and you feel guilt. You feel like you missed your chance, what you were supposed to do. And I thought that's a moment that anybody who's had somebody close by commit suicide and knew something was wrong and didn't act shares that regret. And I wondered if you would help us to learn what you learned from that moment with this man who's troubled in the middle of the war. How can we learn to seize those moments? How can we learn to listen if we're being told, be an instrument here for saving somebody's life? What, what can we learn in our own journeys when we are confronted with that moment on a bus? Yes, well, I think the main lesson I learned out of it is don't wait till tomorrow. There might not be a tomorrow. I did not realize that he was that desperate. That didn't come out of the conversation. But by smoking and drinking with him, I felt I had forfeited my right to speak to him about Christ. So when I found out he had jumped out the window of his hotel, you imagine how awful I felt that I'd had an opportunity the Lord gave to me. And because of my conduct, I didn't have the credibility to speak to him. That was a lifelong lesson I'm glad I learned early in my Christian life. Well, I certainly wanted to bring it up because when you read a book like The Other Side of Infamy that somebody's 
memoir, you do hope you can draw something from it besides just history, besides certainly the entertaining, fun aspects of it, the look back. And this is something I really think that we could apply. You didn't have to share that with us, but you still, after 75 years, felt compelled to do this for him. And I wondered if there were other times when you had that opportunity that you maybe were more energized there to speak to people. What is your work with the Navigators been like on that score? How have you seen your involvement with the ministry change from World War II through to the current day when you're this incredible elder statesman? Well, I feel that the main message of the Bible is that we're to be witnesses of uh, what we know and have experienced and be sure to share with everybody that is open without being fanatics. I like to get acquainted with people to where they trust me, and then give them the uh, good news. I have a vow that I uh, try to follow, and that is, I will not deny Christ by my silence. I will not deny him by my conduct when I can't get my own way. That's when we're most apt to lose our testimonies, when we don't get our own way. So that's the part of the vow I try to follow. Listeners, I think, and people who read history in general of the war may not realize the role that faith played in the war. I think a lot of people get it wrong. They don't understand exactly what the Axis was doing. They know even less about the Japanese Empire at the time than they do about Germany. We always tend to focus on the Germans, and we know that Hitler was really trying to co-opt the church. We spoke to Nathan Stoltzfus about his book, Hitler's Compromises, where he talks about this, Hitler trying to be the great seducer here and take over the church and perch himself in there. He kind of knows that this is a very Christian nation that he's leading, and he figures, well, if I can just get that raw material, people want to be obedient. I'll just sort of squeeze them over to being obedient to me, and he's going to claim to be the voice of God to the people. They say that there are no atheists in the foxhole. When you're throwing yourself there into the fight, you're on the deck of the West Virginia, you're fighting the flames. I wonder, what was your experience in the aftermath of the attacks? Did you find many people who'd sort of seen your quiet way of being a Christian, much the way you were brought to the faith by seeing the way that some of your fellow men acted? Did you find a lot of people coming to you where they've seen so much destruction on December 7th and asking you to speak to them about your faith. Yes, this idea of no atheists in the foxhole needs to be modified a little bit in my mind. I find that men in combat have a very fine sense of where there's real danger and where the danger is past. As long as there's real danger, they are reaching out to God. But the moment the danger is past, they revert to their old ways. I have a story in the book about right during a lull in the bombing that one of my friends came up. He called me Deacon. He said, I just had a wonderful answer to prayer. I said, tell me about it. He said, I got blown over the side. And uh, as I was swimming ashore, I ran out of breath. I knew it was cigarettes. So I told God... If he'd just give me enough breath to get ashore, I'd never spoke again. My eyes trailed down his arm, and I said, what's that between your fingers? <laughs> it was a lighted cigarette. <laughs> so his vow didn't last too long. <laughs> they would kind of find a way to talk ourselves out of it later and, and look for signs and things like that. You've lived 
80 plus years as a Christian. You write in the book, I am not a perfect Christian. You're still working on it. What do you say to, gosh, if a guy who's 103 cannot get it right, what hope is there for us at 20 or 40 or 50 or any age because you've been at it so long? What? How do you explain that and kind of debunk that notion, I think, is your goal? Well, most primarily has to do with forgiving the enemy. When I met Captain Fushida, who led the raid, my eyes kind of went upward. The last time I saw him, he was bombing a ship alongside my ship. It's natural for people of different nationalities to love each other. They're curious. They want to learn on a people-to-people level. But in almost every generation, there's some ambitious tyrant that poisons the minds of the people, leads them astray through propaganda and lying. So that's the person I have trouble forgiving. As I got better acquainted with Shushita, I'm convinced he had genuine remorse for what he had done. So I could forgive him. But it wasn't until I felt he was genuinely remorseful for what he had done. He was a victim of leaders who led him astray. So you can see that I'm very forgiving of people, but not of their leaders that lead them astray. Well, you're still a human being, and I think that that's something that people, when they look from the outside and they're looking for a brick to build up that wall between them and any kind of faith or relationship with God, they seem to say, well, there's lots of Christians that do things wrong. There's lots of people in, in any faith that they'll say, well, they do things wrong, so therefore that that's not a good one. I'll, I'll just avoid that or whatever they think. This is something very frank that you share in the book. You say, I couldn't bring myself to shake this man's hand. The West Virginia was your home. You lost 105 men, and because you do the mail on the ship, you distribute the mail, you knew them all at least by their names. And so that's a moment where you describe in the other side of infamy your own weakness. You say, I know what I should be doing, and yet your wife greets Fochita, and you're not able to do it. Even though you find that he's converted to Christianity, which I think will surprise people, how did you get to know him later and allow yourself at least to be open to that and try to overcome the lack of forgiveness? Uh, he became an evangelist, and our paths crossed several times. So once I believed he was really remorseful, as I said, I could welcome him as a brother. And unless his leaders had a similar experience, I can't forgive them for all the tragedy they caused. I want to go back to December 7th, the first moment someone's bombing your ship and you hear explosions and you're in the Navy. There's also an, one Army man there with you, I believe. You do grab your Bibles, you run to the harbor, but it's very quickly apparent that that's not going to be the main thing you're going to need if you're going to stay alive. People have varied reactions to that detail because it is unlike anything I have ever read before, certainly, and it seems counterintuitive. You have that moment then when you come under fire and you think that's it for you. You think that your number is up. So describe that. Describe how you get out of it. And a little more after that moment, we brought people to the ship. How do you end up on the deck and how do you end up fighting that day? What comes after that when this plane, these zeros are bearing down on you? Well, ever since I became a Christian, I'd studied the Bible. I knew about heaven. My feeling is that life on this earth is about a meaningful relationship with God, 
with family and with friends. I think Hibbert is just a continuation of that, of a meaningful relationship with God, family, and friends. I think I felt maybe like D.L. Moody. He said, uh, Heaven is my home, but I'm not homesick. <laughs> so I knew if God uh, was his time, I'd be taken home. So I didn't fear it. Like Paul, I knew I'd be better off in that. That's a much different perspective that people that are afraid of what's going to happen to them after they die. My guest is Lieutenant Jim Downing, the second oldest survivor of the Pearl Harbor attacks, and also, as we just learned, the oldest man to publish a book, which is another feather in your cap. He recounts these and his long life of experiences related to his journey of faith and also in the Navy. In his book, The Other Side of Infamy, My Journey Through Pearl Harbor and the World of War. Denise of the 100 Pages Per Hour blog writes of The Other Side of Infamy, quote, if you are a history buff or like to learn about World War II, I highly recommend this read. But I also recommend it to anyone who wants to learn what it is like to become a Christian and lead others to Christ during one of our country's most difficult times, unquote. As I mentioned earlier, you once entertained the idea you might run for president yourself. That was your plan, and life kind of intervened. There was much trepidation about President Obama's later visit to Hiroshima and concern that he might apologize for the bombings that ended the war with Japan that they had started at the Pearl Harbor attack that you witnessed. So what are your feelings on the use of the atomic bombs and those who didn't face President Truman's awful decision who kind of second-guess history here from the comfort of 2016? Yes, I was glad that he did not apologize. Now, there are various estimates of what had happened if the Americans had to invade Japan on the beaches. And the estimates run about a million American casualties and 400,000 Japanese would have been killed if we had made the landing. So as horrible as the bombs were, the uh, number was much less than that. So it was a tough decision, but I think it was a right decision. And maybe I'm not totally objective, but I would have been one of those million of casualties on the beaches of Japan. So I was glad that this weapon came into use so the war could be stopped, and I hope it is never used again for any reason, any place in the world. You write in The Other Side of Infamy that after the Iron Curtain fell, America was fighting two wars, one against communism and the other against spiritual darkness, this idea that feeling that there's this bigger picture going on. It's not just invasions and fighting and bombs. It's souls that you're believing. People need to be brought to being better people. After the war and after the Navy, you decide maybe you and your wife have done enough. You've lived that life. You've given so much to your country already, and you try to resign. And this is a, another example in The Other Side of Infamy where you find yourself pushed to another route. So share that story briefly. When you try to resign from the Navy, what happens to bring you back? Well, I learned pretty early in my Christian life that finding the will of God is not a real great mystery, that he opens doors and he closes the door. And in the book of Revelation, it said, I open a door and no man could shut it. I shut a door and no man could open it. 
So when I decided to leave the Navy, I got a tremendous offer from the Navy. And it was such a big open door that I recognized that as a signal from God for me to take this job as an advisor to the Venezuelan Navy in South America. So that's what I look for is a closed door and an open door. And I felt by that he was closing the door for me to leave the Navy. And that was something hard to do, right? They didn't usually allow somebody to rescind, or they didn't usually rescind a letter of resignation. So this was really a first for you. Talk about the door being thrown open for you. They agree to tear up the letter. Yes, I thought there'd be a problem when I withdrew my letter, but they wanted me in South America so bad, somebody tore it up. In the other side of infamy, you recount several times when you think your life is over, starting from hitting the dirt there during the Pearl Harbor attack with the plane strafing you. Another, incredibly, you talked about the nuclear bombs and hoping that they're never used again, is when you soak up the fallout from a massive H-bomb test in the Pacific. I believe it's the largest bomb test ever. And you've lived to 103, which seems impossible. You soak up all these rads of radiation. And I wondered, do you ever stop and think of the surprise that your doctors would have had at the time to know that you've lived to 103? Well, the reaction of the doctors, when I told them I deserve some kind of compensation for the awful dose of radioactivity that I got, they look at me and say, we ought to do this to everybody. <laughs> as much benefit has been to you. So I don't get much sympathy from the Navy Department about the damage done to me. Although a lot of my co-laborers did suffer. All of us had a remarkable drop in white blood cells and a rise in red blood cells. And I recovered normally. Not everybody did. I've heard you say that, as you write in The Other Side of Infamy, weakness invites aggression, so does appeasement, unquote. When I interviewed 93-year-old Roger Boas, a veteran of Patton's Army in the European theater, his book is Battle Rattle. He talks about the aftermath and the effects of him being mustered out of the service. I asked him the flip side of that question, and that is, how do we avoid reacting to every crisis and every despot as if we're meeting him at Munich? Meaning, how do we know when to turn that other cheek when somebody is being aggressive and try to use diplomacy and find common ground? I mean, diplomacy is not necessarily a catch-all. It's not a switch you throw. But it started me thinking, reading The Other Side of Infamy, as when I read Roger Boas's book, Battle Rattle, this idea of when is that gesture going to be interpreted as weakness to negotiate or to give somebody half a loaf of bread, let's say? Your long life of experience, I wanted to ask you if you have the answer to that or can give us some wisdom. How do we know when we're inviting aggression by weakness and how do we know when to turn the other cheek in international matters? Well, I feel that the only language that ambitious tyrants have is force. President Ronald Reagan had a policy of peace through strength. And he coined the phrase, weakness invites aggression. Our potential enemies have good spy rings. They know what we can do. And as long as we can equal or outarm them and be ready, they will be cautious. So we don't take a chance 
on appeasement or weakness. Be strong, and they know it, and that we're not afraid to use the weapons we have. That was really something that you experienced in the run-up to the war. You don't know that the war is coming, but tell us, what was the prevailing feeling about the Japanese? Because I think this is one reason there's always conspiracy theories about things like this, because nobody can believe afterwards that we didn't expect an attack to come, whether it's 9-11 or whether it's Pearl Harbor. People think, you must have known. Somebody must have been able to connect it because it seems so vivid in the aftermath of it. So what was it, do you think, that left us so exposed to this attack? Was it just that we didn't think the Japanese would come all that way or that they had the capability? Was it just feelings of negativity towards them as a people that we thought, well, they're just going to stay over there in Asia? Why was it? Well, how do we leave our shorts down with an eye towards how can we avoid that in the future? I think I know what causes war, and it can be summarized in one word, and that's the word greed. There are world leaders that raise up that are greedy for power, greedy for reputation, and greedy for territory. So uh, when we have people with that known ambition, why, we can't appease. We can't take it easy. And both the Germans and the Japanese had published ambitions to rule the world. And today... If I understand what I read correctly, we have nations like that are greedy for power, greedy for territory, and we must arm ourselves so strongly that they will not act. I saw a no parking sign the other day, and it said, don't even think about parking here. (laughs) And I said, we need to remain so strong in space, in cyberspace. In the skies, on the ground, on the sea, and under the sea, so strong that no dictator will even think about attacking us. Can you describe the feeling that you had when victory finally comes? Because I think when we picture it, again, I'm asking you a lot of things here to give us the firsthand perspective, because we know from movies and newspaper covers and looking at pictures here in Times Square, a few blocks from where I am now, and it all looks like it's a big party, but there was great sacrifice. And I wonder if you, in closing, would talk about that other side of infamy, to use the title of your book. What was the feeling that day? I mean, yes, you're happy that the war is over, but such a huge cost. So many men you knew, the West Virginia that had been your home is gone. These men that you'd known and fought with for all these long years, you're there at the dawn of the war all the way through until the end. What was that other feeling that you had when the war ended beyond the jubilation of it being over? Well, I know in the closing days when both the Germans and Japanese realized they were losing the war, they tried to negotiate where they would come out of it with a great deal of their power. I'm glad our government stood strong and said, unconditional surrender. Only way we'll stop fighting. And we got those terms with them. So I felt sorry for the people who had been led astray, but was glad that the same people that caused the war could not remain in power. So I think that's my next feelings. Sorry for the people that were so devastated by the war, but glad that their leaders 
would never be able to do anything like this again. You say unconditional surrender, and it makes me think of Ulysses S. Grant. And when you're growing up, when you're very small, where you start the book, the Great War, what becomes known as World War One, is just starting over in Europe. And I wondered if at that age, did you know people even growing up? Obviously, they would be older then, not old from your perspective at 103, but they would be Civil War veterans. Did anybody in the run-up to the Great War still talk about the Civil War? Did they talk about things like U.S. Grant? Because had we applied Grant's idea of unconditional surrender to the South and then be magnanimous, we wouldn't have had World War II. We wouldn't have had this really bad peace where we have the armistice, there's not really a surrender, not a peace treaty, and it sows the seeds of Hitler. So were there people that were talking about the Civil War in the run-up to World War I and World War II in the way that today we talk about World War II looking back? Yes, I think that the difference is that the Civil War was an internal war, and the other wars are international. But I just feel that a Civil War or no Civil War, we must watch out for people who are greedy for power, for pride, and territory. Anybody that's of that inclination needs to be dealt with when it breaks out. Not after war is broken out. Well, speaking of the American Civil War, William McKinley, our last Civil War veteran president, said he'd been a soldier for my country and a soldier for Christ. You may not have fulfilled your boyhood dream of following McKinley to the White House. You did get to get into the Oval Office, though, at one point and at least be a visitor and go to the State of the Union. Lieutenant Jim Downing, thank you so much for being just as much of an inspiration to me as President McKinley is. And as my wife will certainly know, that's a high compliment. McKinley, who's also a strong Christian, said in his life that all you could hope for once you've gone was to be a good example to the people who come after. You are certainly a great example to us, really an inspiration to the nation and the world. And maybe you'll still run for president. You have time. You're energetic. I, I think uh, I'd look forward to that in 2020, maybe. Well, I had a couple of people that wanted to put my name on the write-in ballot. <laughs> I don't know what they did or not. Well, if I'd read the book before on November 8th, I guarantee I, I would have written you in. I really appreciate it again, you spending the time with me. I enjoyed the book so much. You'll continue to be an inspiration. This is incredible. You're keeping such a busy schedule here, still doing a book tour at 103. It's really great. Well, I thank you, and it's been a pleasure to visit with you and your listeners. May of 1945 saw the lights go on again. Once more, the nation's capital was blazing in all its glory. And in cities throughout the nation, the blackout was ended. Germany had surrendered. The war in Europe was over. There was still a war to be fought to a finish in the Pacific. But that couldn't dim the celebration that marked the fall of Hitler and the end of his dreams of world conquest. Three months later, crowds gather in front of the White House, awaiting the announcement of Japan's surrender from President Harry S. Truman. It took two atomic bombs to bring Japan to her knees. But now Pearl Harbor was avenged, and the news triggered the greatest celebration the nation has ever known. Again, the book is The Other Side of Infamy, My Journey Through Pearl Harbor and the World at War. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even bookmark the URL off the banner ad on our homepage, for all your Amazon purchases. Now you want to buy something, just go to our homepage first, click through the banner, and we'll take you to Amazon. 
Then Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make at no additional cost to you. Once again, thank you so much to Lieutenant Downing for joining us and for sharing his eyewitness account of the Pearl Harbor attack. It was truly an honor to host him. My only regret is that his wife, Morena, isn't here to see her husband become what hopefully will be a best-selling author. I would have liked to meet her too, but the book was the next best thing. To learn more about the unique journey of faith Navigator Number 6 has taken in his long life, visit navigators.org. We can all benefit from his wisdom and example, no matter where we are on questions of faith. And while you're online, I hope you'll let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. Don't forget to catch Jim's speech at the 75th commemoration of the Pearl Harbor attacks. I'll post a YouTube video on Facebook as soon as I can get one, and I'll be tweeting that out too. For my interview with Roger Boas, author of Battle Rattle, about the time he spent with General Patton's army in the European theater, dig back into our archives wherever you're listening, or stream the chat at historyauthor.com. Many shows shy away from older guests. I know from my time in TV that how you look and how you sound is much more important to the senior producers and other higher-ups than your experience or what you have to say. But those of us who love history are excited and in awe of men such as Roger Boas and Jim Downing. They are truly voices from the past, and when we listen to them, we carry a little bit of their story with us and make sure we learn the lessons in peacetime that they had to learn through war's blood and fire. That's it for this Pearl Harbor Day installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you're listening. And if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. The boys won the war and came home from the fight. The last night on Broadway was almost his night. But ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to meet. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.